Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm joined today with Dr. Nahid Dosani. As a palliative care physician, Dr. Nahid Dosani is passionate about advancing equitable access to healthcare for people experiencing homelessness. After a transformative experience providing care to a Toronto homeless man, Dr. Dosani was motivated to develop Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, PEACH. Based at the Inner City Health Associates, the PEACH program delivers community-based hospice palliative care to society's most vulnerable individuals, regardless of their housing status or factors such as poverty or substance abuse. PEACH brings housing, mental health, and healthcare providers together to plan an individual's care while recognizing but not judging a person's circumstances. This care model has inspired similar programs in cities across the continent and the development of Journey Home Hospice, Toronto's first hospice for people experiencing homelessness, which opened in May 2018. With COVID-19, Dr. Dosani's leadership efforts include serving as medical director for the region of Peel's COVID-19 Isolation Homeless Program. A tireless advocate, Dr. Dosani brings attention to the correlation between health and a wide range of social issues through social media, public speaking, and national media. He is also co-founder of Doctors for Defunding Police, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, and holds faculty appointments at the University of Toronto and McMaster University. Dr. Dosani's research interests include care models for people experiencing homelessness and access to palliative care among culturally diverse communities. Dr. Dosani has received many prestigious honors for his trailblazing work. These awards include the Meritorious Service Cross for Humanitarianism from Canada's Governor General in 2018, a Humanitarian Award for the Canadian Society of Palliative Care Physicians in May 2019, and the Early Career Leader Award from the Canadian Medical Association in 2020. Now, that is quite a list of accomplishments, Nahid. I know there's many more accolades to come and many more that uh, go uh, unseen, perhaps. So welcome, Dr. Dosani, to the Creative Conversations podcast. We're so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Shaliza. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the discussion for sure. Thank you so much. So as a physician during a very long COVID-19 pandemic ongoing, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key issues that you've experienced or continue to experience at the intersections of health and equity? It was, uh, you know, um, shocking to some that people who were racialized, um, living in racialized communities, were hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen um, our uh, elders, people who live in long-term care, uh, who are significantly impacted. We've seen laborers, people who are working on the front lines as essential workers, um, who have been uh, disproportionately impacted as well. And also people experiencing homelessness. So, you know, it's not that health inequities uh, didn't exist before COVID-19. There's, this pandemic has just shined a real light on the existing inequities that affect people, and they've amplified, they've really reverberated 
uh, those inequities uh, far and wide. Thank you for saying that because I, you know, in, in my equity work, I've always learned and done some research around, you know, health inequities, specifically for Black and Indigenous communities, and they have always existed. But I feel like no one was paying attention to those inequities until the pandemic. And of course, to our homeless or houseless communities, no one was paying attention to these inequities. And so, um, you know, I think that now that we are shedding light on this topic, we really need to see some change. And you started Peach, the palliative education and care for the homeless uh, program, after an encounter you had with a houseless individual named Terry. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how that encounter inspired you to create Peach and perhaps how it's kind of serving ongoing during the pandemic and how it's so important? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, for me, the journey really started in my first year of residency training at the University of Toronto when I was working at a local men's shelter. And I was tapped on the shoulder to meet a gentleman named Terry, who was in crisis. He was shaking, he was curled into a ball, he was writhing in pain. And as I examined him, I looked at the base of his tongue, and I could see what was causing so much distress. He had a widespread had a neck cancer that likely started at the base of the tongue. And these cancers really hurt. And so he was presenting in pain crisis to our shelter. But as I began to get to know him and read his chart, I got to understand that he was actually diagnosed a year before at a local um, cancer care center. And um, due to his mental health, he had schizophrenia and substance use. He wasn't wasn't able to organize himself for follow-up. So as time went on, his tumor grew and he started to experience pain. So he did what any one of us would do. He went hospital to hospital, ER to ER, walk-in clinic to walk-in clinic, seeking the kind of pain control that anybody in this country, in this world should have access to, uh, to. Um, Terry was denied access to medicines that would treat his quality of life, like pain medicines. And maybe it was because of the way he looked. Maybe it was the words he said or didn't say. Maybe it was because they thought, you know, he was opioid seeking or pain medicine seeking. Um, and so he was denied access to to that those kinds of treatments. And he found himself in, in our care that day. And um, he did promise me he would take some pain medicines the next day. And I got to work the next day to get that all started. Um, and I couldn't find him anywhere. And I remember his friend um, who was staying in his room calling down the hall and saying, hey, doc, are you looking for Terry? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, you didn't hear? Terry died last night. Terry's body was found in the early hours of the morning by a commuter on her way to work. It was too little, too late. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. He had turned to the Mm -hmm. best pain relief that he knew. And so this was a very a traumatic event, obviously a total tragedy for Terry and mm-hmm. his local community, um, but also for me, um, in the sense that uh, we're often expected to go and see the next, you know, patient and care for the next person, um, and I just couldn't do it. I actually had to take some time up in my residency training, um, and uh, to, I spent that time really reflecting on what had happened and, you know, uh, thinking about how you know we could change the system. And I guess the rest is kind of history. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure if you have the answers to this, but in your opinion, what are some of the flaws in the system or maybe the stresses on the system that led to someone like Terry kind of falling through the cracks? Is it, you know, his his own initiative or, you know, his lack of access? Or is it that, uh, you know, folks never looked at his file? 
you know, what, what do you think it might have been? You make some really good points. And I think um, it's in conversations like this that we um, have to really reflect on what many people would say in this scenario. A lot of people would blame Terry for what he did or didn't do. And actually, when you when you look at the the, the health and, and, and social outcomes for people experiencing homelessness, most of the inciting factors are usually structural. So at baseline, people experiencing homelessness are arguably Canada's sickest subpopulation. They're 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C, five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer. Average life expectancies range from 34 to 47 years old. Um, you know, so um, Terry was was probably very likely to get sick and get sick earlier in his life. He unfortunately got sick in his 30s, so that's really young, of course. Of course, But then when people experiencing homelessness access healthcare, they typically lack equitable access um, in the sense that you know, technically he had the same access you and I would have, which is equality, everyone getting the same things to be happy and healthy. But Terry didn't get equity informed healthcare. He didn't get what he needed to be happy and healthy. And so healthcare can be a traumatizing place for many people who experience homelessness. People may feel, um, um, uh, that they're not being heard. They might perceive discrimination, for example. And then when treatments are recommended, people who are unhoused also have difficulty accessing those treatments. Where do you store your medications um, when you get them? Um, it, you know, we, all have, we often talk about prepping for a colonoscopy. Can you imagine prepping for a colonoscopy when you don't have a home or access to a bathroom or to deal with the side effects of chemotherapy or surgical um, outcomes? Um, so, you know, there, that I could really go on and on and on, but in every direction we look at the, the predisposing environment he was in and in terms of his health, the access he had to healthcare, and then, you know, just even the trauma of healthcare itself and the material conditions to support yourself when receiving healthcare, there are lots of, of barriers that are kind of, you can see in sequence back to back to back here. And it just reminds me of Brian Sinclair, right? Who died in an ER waiting for help. And it, it just feels like, you know, you talked about equity and equality. It feels like it's, it's systematic um, and it's systemic and it's through our structures. We have to not only shift the way we think about healthcare and about folks, right, and, and our own biases, but we also have to change our policies in our system. So that, like you said, if you have to do an exam, if you have to take medic- medicine, if you have to come up with, a, with a, um, a checkup and there's dates, there has to be systems in place to actually accommodate for these barriers that folks are facing, specifically those who are houseless. And I think that's a really important thing that I think I've been thinking about during the pandemic, especially, you know, days like today that are really cold. Uh, and and thinking about the lockdown, right? There's nowhere to go. Yeah, for sure. And I think what we need to do is when we when we start to talk about things in terms of structures, like you mentioned, we start to flip the the blame switch because I think when you um, talk about individuals, there's a lot of blame. A lot of people out there think, you know, oh, this person is on the street because they did it to themselves, or they're, you know, um, you know, dealing with drugs um, and using drugs because they chose that life. And I can tell you, as someone who's provided healthcare for um, many, many people who experience homelessness, that not one person I've met wanted to be in the position that they're in. Um, did some of them make decisions that maybe you and I wouldn't? Maybe, but I will say that many people in our communities are just really in 
precarious positions. And any one of us could be one of those people who are on the street or in a shelter. In fact, a significant proportion of Canadians are just a few paychecks away from being um, homeless um, themselves. And, you know, sometimes these are the pro- these situations are the products of bad luck um, uh, and a string of unfortunate consequences. So we, what, what, what I try to do with this work, particularly with the PEACH program, is, um, you know, de- definitely we collect data and we report on it and we do research, but we also tell stories. We derive what we call narratives of compassion. We tell stories um, with permission and support of the people we care for, of course, to support confidentiality. But we tell the stories, the human stories of what it's like to be unhoused, what it's like to deal with serious progressive illness, to derive empathy and compassion. How do we take Canadians from this place where they're like blaming people who are unhoused for the situation they're in to a place where they understand their structural root factors and want to actually act on changing those factors. That's the journey we need to go through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Right. And I think, you know, in a lot of the work I do, we talk about counter storytelling, a key tenant of critical race theory, because if we don't share these stories, these narratives, these personal experiences, then we have this dominant idea, the stigma of certain patients, specifically in your context, what you're talking about is the homeless community. And I think it's so important to hear these stories because I totally agree with you, especially in, you know, the situation we're in right now, any one of us could be a paycheck away uh, from, from being on the streets without, without a choice. Right. So I think that's important. You also mentioned, you know, in your work, you mentioned in palliative care that, uh, you know, you identify harm reduction as a aspect that's not really discussed. Can you tell us a little bit more about why maybe harm reduction is not Uh, you know, talked about in palliative care? And perhaps why do you think it's the case or what may be the implications uh, in the failure to address harm reduction? Yeah. So for those who are newer to some of these concepts, you know, palliative care is an approach to care, which emphasizes quality of life for people with serious illnesses at any stage in any phase of illness, um, even right at diagnosis up until and through end of life into the bereavement stage to support, you know, people who are involved in that person's life, like a family, for example, or family members or caregivers. Um, and so Peach is a mobile street and shelter-based palliative care program that provides healthcare for peace, anybody who's on the street and or, and or in a shelter, um, a rooming house, transitional housing, um, anyone who has unstable housing so no person falls to the cracks um you know our team uh, cares for between 120 and 130 clients on caseload at any given time there's a home care coordinator a health navigator a nursing coordinator six palliative care physicians um uh, a peace psychiatrist um and an allied health home care team that provides health care for the homeless and so you know a significant proportion of people that we see are people who use drugs and you know to to, um, you know, just bring it home for people, you know, basically, if you live in Canada and are a person who uses drugs, you probably will not get access to palliative care in Canada. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that um, much of palliative medicine uh, that's practiced by, con- by clinicians and providers is abstinence-based. So pal- people are really trained to provide palliative care only if people don't use drugs. And if they do use drugs, they're kind of trained to not support them. And that's that's obviously inappropriate and that leads to inequities. Um, the second reason is we haven't seen the scaling up of harm reduction approaches to uh, uh, harm reduction as a concept in palliative medicine, as we may have seen in other areas of healthcare. Harm reduction is though as a way to practice healthcare um, uh, to reduce the harms of drugs without telling the person you cannot use drugs. So it acknowledges drug use. It centers the person. It's a form of radical 
love and care for people who are often traumatized by by healthcare and our, our health systems, uh, to name one of many systems that might be contributing to that. And so when you have um, a discipline that doesn't recognize harm reduction and hasn't, we haven't done everything we can to uptake approaches, that means, you know, what that can look like is prescribing opioids, for example, when someone has an opioid use disorder, or prescribing um, medicines for symptom management, even though the person is using drugs um, in the streets, um, um, or even for continuing to provide palliative approaches to care, um, and working with that person to get them access the harm reduction supports, you know, it could be a supervised consumption site, overdose prevention, you know, supports, uh, clean needle exchange, you know, it can look like many things or, or even prescribing, you know, medicines for palliative care when someone's in an alcohol harm reduction program, because there are different forms of harm reduction. So it can look like many things, but there are structural barriers, which are making it really hard for people to get access. And that's really sad because this population is very sick and could and would benefit from palliative care. I think the future will be talking more about how to better intersect these two worlds and how to better support people who are using drugs with palliative care. Absolutely. You know, it's a lot to think about. I grew up in Vancouver and there is a strong needle exchange program there. So it seems like it would be, you know, common knowledge that we should do that across Canada. So I've always wondered where that resistance comes from. And there's a lot of Again, back to that stigma, a lot of discrimination and biases, and I think a lot of a, a lack of awareness that folks have. But it, it, everything you're saying makes so much sense because if someone is ill and they are, uh, you know, addicted to a certain drug or they need a certain drug, instead of kind of reducing it and you know making them go cold turkey, for lack of a better word, that's not going to help them, right? That's probably going to give them, uh, you know, more harm or they might overdose or whatever it might be. So. What do you think is the barrier? I'm just wondering, what do you think is the barrier to folks seeing this perspective and understanding this uh, way to go forward with palliative care in terms of harm reduction? What do you think I is think, the barrier? I think, yeah, I think a huge barrier is stigma. I think people mm-hmm. still uh, very much stigmatize people who use drugs um, as lesser people, um, as people who are doing it to themselves. Um, and it's often driven by ideology, right? So you're good if you don't use drugs and you're bad if you do use drugs. And if you're bad and you use drugs, then you don't deserve the help of the health healthcare system. And that's nonsense. We need to start seeing this as an illness. And on the topic of illness, it's important to recognize that um, sometimes people are struggle to visualize a palliative care approach for this population because of the trajectory of illness. Um, People can very much visualize cancer, for example, and what that would look like in palliative care. Other people can visualize heart failure or COPD, and there's more and more of a push towards non-cancer palliative care, and that's great. I think that's really important. But what's harder to recognize is what does the palliative care trajectory look look like for someone who uses drugs where the addiction issue is actually the life-limiting illness. And we know that, you know, the average life expectancy in Toronto's shelter system this last year was under, you know, 48 years old. Um, They had, you know, 2.5 deaths per week in the shelter system and a significant proportion of those people died from overdoses. And more data will be released for us to understand, but that's just like a local context to get us to understand why that is important. So um, until we start talking about, you know, uh, a substance use as an illness trajectory in, 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 the, in the ways that we might talk about other, you know, diseases, it may not mm-hmm. get that access. But even if we did that, I'm still convinced there would be major barriers because I think, mm-hmm. you know, people stigmatize this population. People really are um, discriminatory towards people who use drugs. It just reminds me, like, it's any addiction, right? Whether it's smoking, whether it's drinking, whether it's chewing a lot of gum or, you know, any, any type of 
uh, addiction that it that it could be, I, I feel like they should be looked at in similar ways in, in that way. Um, it's really insightful, actually, and it makes me think about how do I sort of check my own biases and disrupt them uh, when I'm engaging with uh, homeless community members, right? And I think that's something that I've been working on a lot. And, you know, you did say this already, you answered it, but maybe we can dig deeper and see if there's more you can share with me. But, you know, you say that there are, for every homeless person you see, there are 23 others on the verge of homelessness. And so in your opinion, digging deeper into these stigmas, what do you think are some of the misconceptions about homeless folks that uh, we see? Yeah, I think that's a really good one to start with. Um, The fact that many people who think about homelessness, think about the person on the corner, street corner, you know, pen, you know, pen handling with a sign is the person who experiences homelessness, but that's just a static definition. And in fact, Canada has one of the most progressive definitions of homelessness in the world, where homelessness is really viewed as a continuum of experiences, which can be on the street, in a shelter, couch surfing, even the woman who suffers intimate partner violence and suffers the mental health consequences of, you know, have not having financial security, for example, meets the Canadian definition of homelessness. So a Appreciating those uh, phenotypes allows us to really understand that actually when we're talking about people on the streets, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, man. There's so many more people who suffer from the public health issue of vulnerable housing. Um, I think I think another uh, kind of you know um, thing that a lot of people don't recognize is that it's often structural factors that actually lead people to end up on the streets. Um, you know, one of the fastest growing subsets of the homeless population we're seeing in cities across Canada and many, you know, cities uh, in North America and Europe and Australia too, is the is the elderly people who are new to homelessness after the age of fifty five. And you know, you can imagine there's a certain way on the street to survive. And these are folks who are new to homelessness and they're frail and they don't know those ways and they're struggling. And one of the reasons we're seeing more elderly people on the streets is because of the weakening social safety net that we are seeing that has uh, occurred in multiple ways over the last three decades around housing, around you know medications, around healthcare, around uh, social assistance. You know, people don't have that safety net. More more people are working in precarious work, which is so random and you know if you have a string of bad luck and you know you could end up on the streets as a result of that so it's it's uh it goes without saying that that's a really big deal um and that that's something important to consider you know this the safety net that we that we see um and 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 i and i think that a, a, a lot of people finally what they what they really you know need to recognize is that you know homeless people care about themselves i think sometimes there's this um, mislabeling and judgment that occurs that, you know, people who are unhoused um, are in that situation because they don't care about themselves. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. The people I care for and have cared for care about their medical care. They care about their their life. They care about their death. Like, they're planning ahead, thinking about what their death will look like, what their funerals will look like, who will be there. Like, it's to that detail. But and they, they, they don't often have the opportunity to care like you and I would. When given an opportunity, they do. A compassionate you know, health worker, a social care outreach worker who, who puts that extra effort. Um, when given the, the, the road um, to, you know, what, uh, w- you know, having their wishes fulfilled, um, they follow through. Um, and so um, I, I, I think that's, you know, one point and one last point I'd like to make is that I think a lot of people are comfortable with the concept of mental health um, or even substance use being a pathway to the street. But I think a lot of Canadians are uncomfortable with the fact that nearly 30 percent of people who are unhoused actually don't have a substance use or mental health issue. Um, it kind of connects to what I said before. But 
the social safety net that we're seeing has reduced so much that actually homelessness is a pathway for many people because of a lack of economic opportunity. And so, you know, the, the inherently we have to think deeply about what's causing that. And we need to think about the policies that are leading uh, this situation to occur. Absolutely. I think uh, everything you're saying resonates with me. You know, it makes me wonder there's a gentleman who is often um, around my place and I haven't seen him in what feels like two months. And I wonder, you know, where is he? We had great conversations. You know, he'd always compliment my hairstyles if I had it straight, if I had it curly. And we had sort of a friendship. We'd laugh a lot. And I had given him, you know, a a button that um, I had gotten during uh, the teacher strikes. And so he wore it with pride and he'd always tell me how proud he was of me, you know, for being a teacher and uh, tell me, telling me about his life. And it's just those moments of connection as humans, we're all human that are so important. And uh, maybe offline, we can talk about maybe where I can see if, if he's safe and, and where he is, because I haven't seen him in a while. And I think that's just the community and the, the, the humanness that we all have to have. And we all have to, um, you know, engage in and foster so that we care about one another, right? And I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, for sure. And one of the things that's, you know, one of the things that is so distressing nowadays is this concept of not in my backyardism and nimbyism. Um, and we're seeing more and more of this, um, that, uh, you know, people are kind of um, fighting back when a city is trying to build a shelter or, or create housing units for unhoused people. People are very comfortable with, you know, supporting um, the unhoused population until it's like literally in their neighborhood. And that's really unfortunate um, and speaks to the fact that uh, I don't think that people really understand that the homelessness is a result of structural failures and, and a lack of compassion uh, in, in our society. And until that changes, um, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not so, so certain we'll be able to make a dent in this issue in an appreciable way. That's why we need to work at that every day. Absolutely. And, you know, earlier you mentioned that um, homeless folks often have a decreased life expectancy of 20 to 30 years. So you've mentioned some, some of the factors that might be involved in that. But what are some other factors uh, is it failure of policy? Is it shelter funding um, or something else entirely that is uh, result resulting in these uh, lowered uh, life expectancies? Yeah, so people who are unhoused um, and lack appropriate safe spaces to reside are are stuck in in, in environments they don't want to be in, and that leads to poor health outcomes. Um, you know, um, many would say that uh, you know substance use, um, smoking, and alcohol have something to do with it. People who are experiencing homelessness are at higher likelihood to be in congregate settings, and so that affects you know infectious diseases. For example, we've seen what's happened in COVID. Um, um, you know, I've also so just written recently written an op- op-ed that was out in the Toronto Star, um, looking at you know the importance of access to washrooms, menstrual products, and incontinence supplies, and how that can become a, a locus of transmission for infectious diseases like hepatitis, for example. Um, so you know these are just a few examples. And then when people are unhoused, access healthcare. It's often to deal with acute issues like an acute infection, for example, in an emergency department or an admission, you know, for um, an acute problem and then they're discharged but they lack equitable ongoing access to continued primary care which is how you prevent things like you know high blood pressure can prevent you know heart disease or kidney disease for example or cholesterol management 
which can prevent, you know, a heart attack or a stroke, just to give really basic examples or diabetes too, right? Um, and so when you don't have good, you know, primary care uh, on, uh, ongoing, you you get the accumulation of chronic disease, which leads to end organ damage, and then leads people to be sick. Um, and so, you know, lots of reasons why, why unhoused folks um, have lower life expectancies. It's actually quite a travesty when you think about it. Um, it's so, It's to the point where homelessness can basically cut a person's lifespan by about 50% in a country like Canada. That's without the biological diagnosis on board. That's just the, the homelessness. And so homelessness is thought to be more of a terminal diagnosis of the social determinants of health. And what does that say about us and how we're prioritizing how to support this population when really the solutions are known, right? Like, we know mm-hmm. that housing works. We know that it's even cheaper in our system um, and saves money in the long run, particularly when thinking about those high users of social and health systems. Um, it's it's really it's really mind blowing, actually. Yeah. And, you know, it just reminds me of, you know, you talked about this community aspect. And I think we really live in an individualistic society that is not serving us. And if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we have to come together uh, in community. We really have to care about these issues, whether they impact us or not, because they impact our neighbor, right? Whether they're homeless or they have a a roof over their head or they're in a shelter. I think that's key. And, you know, I talk about COVID-19 a lot because it's like top of mind with everything that's continuously going on. It's, you know, two years since, um, you know, it's been a virus in our world and it's really impacting our shelter systems here in Toronto, our shelter capacities, and I know that there's been emergency calls for assistance. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that for me, about what are the repercussions of COVID on homelessness and the health of the homeless? And what can we do to come together and combat the impacts of you know, the lack of shelters? Yeah, you know, I would say that um, homelessness has been um, really... Uh, um, uh, the whole situation has been so impact, but impacted by this pandemic. First of all, you know, um, at the start of the, the, the pandemic, many shelters, respites, and drop-ins had to reduce hours or even close to support physical distancing. So there were several months um, um, of the pandemic where there were just no services for people or if people were connected, it was by a shoestring, you know, that was barely hanging, you know, by a thread. And that thread eventually did snap for many people. Um, what we also saw was the development of, you know, um, COVID isolation hotel programs in many cities and jurisdictions across Canada. And I worked with the regional appeal to design their isolation housing program, which got people off the street in hotels and motels. And we actually got 50% of the population in Peel off the street, you know, very quickly. And we feel that might've prevented you know, or flattened the curve a little bit. And then as time went on, um, what we did see was the growing encampment community in cities across Canada, including Toronto, and, you know, more people living in, in tents in parks than ever before. And the vast majority of people who were on the streets, like just really, really grew um, you know, they used to talk some, about something like 9,000 on the streets in a place like Toronto any night. There's, it went upwards of fifteen to 20,000. It's probably, you know, in, in hovering in and around that number now. So we're seeing more people on the streets and encampments. We're seeing some people um, 
who trust the system enough to go into these isolation hotel programs and then seeing other people who may not trust the system due to you know past experiences or trauma or difficulty building trust who are you know braving the elements living in encampment communities all the while we have an ongoing housing crisis all the while we have an opioid overdose death crisis that is overlaid amongst the covid-19 crisis and so this has been a very difficult journey for unhoused people and the the health and social workers who support them and in and, and, and our local communities. Yeah. And on the same token, you talk about COVID-19 being, you know, an uh, example that Canada can actually cure homelessness or houselessness, you know. Uh, tell me more about that. Yeah. You know, I, I started to realize early on in the pandemic that there was uh, a great synergy happening between, and it, it looks different in different communities because that, you know, how the response occurred for unhoused people looked differently, but, you know, thinking about, you know, Peel, um, where I was working, um, you know, you had local government working with community health providers, working with activists, working with the faith community, or, you know, social agencies that do this work already to build a solution to help, you know, move urgently so that this pandemic would, um, you know, not impact. Uh, this population as much as it potentially could. And, you know, I'd not seen that synergy before. I'd not seen the investment so quickly. All of a sudden, you know, we were getting hotel and motel programs. We had harm reduction services. Healthcare got the funding they needed to support people in situ, in place where they were. Um, and it just got me realizing that, you know, we were always told that that, that kind of synergy wasn't possible. Those investments would never happen. And then boom, they, they kind of literally happened like overnight, like to, to support, you know, the wave coming that did come. And so it's been my theory ever since that if we could do that, if we could respond to the, the needs of unhoused people during COVID-19 in that uniform, seamless, integrated way, um, then we can do the same to, to, to deal with homelessness. COVID has proven that we have the potential to cure homelessness. My fear though, is as, the, as the discourse continues now in Omicron and as we move forward, is that um, we're in a situation where that might actually um, uh, start to dilute the messaging that we are moving on to post, you know, uh, uh, post Omicron topics. And one of the ones that's kind of been left in the previous waves has been, you know, this incredible success story across Canada that basically housed many people. Uh, in these isolation hotels, um, uh, albeit yes, some people were still in encampments and still are. Um, but uh, but uh, um, but that 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 message is not being propagated forward to support us actually talking about how to house every Canadian. And so, for those who are interested in learning more, check out the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness and their recent calls to action. I think it's a very good and important resource that that could be very useful for a long time to come. But um, we need we need to really work on this issue and keep this issue at the at the front of mind uh, as we go through it. Absolutely. Why not transfer what we've learned and continue it, right? Why not continue to house folks in motels and hotels? Absolutely. And you know, Dr. Dosani, you have gained quite a social media following. I think I first learned about you maybe on one of the community TV shows that was happening during COVID. And then I think from Twitter and the news and, uh, you know, you talk a lot about healthcare advocacy. You give a lot of information to folks, which I really appreciate. And you advocate for vulnerable communities. Can you share with some of the listeners, some of the persisting healthcare inequities that you're seeing unfold in real time? And how folks can help and get involved. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, so I think some of the issues that, you know, are front of mind right now, um, 
um, are some of the issues that uh, were probably existing in our communities before. But like I said, you know, before it just were kind of exacerbated uh, by this, you know, pandemic that brought all these issues to the forefront. I think, you know, one of the first ones is, uh, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about people who experience homelessness. And I just want to say that that's one of them for sure. But moving on, you know, just thinking about, you know, racism and healthcare and how racism is a public health emergency. It's been my pinned tweet since May 2020, and it's not going anywhere soon. We still see, you know, forms of overt and covert um, racism. And it's no surprise that, you know, health outcomes for racialized people are worse um, because of the presence of, uh, you know, s- interpersonal racism, yes, but more systemic racism that exists in our health communities. I think we've also seen age- ageism in our pandemic, and we've seen how our long-term care systems are not robustly built, and there are some really perverse um, structures in place that actually promote, you know, profit-making, for example, from long-term care uh, um uh, you know, seeing it as a business, that there is this existence of for-profit long-term care that extracts profits from caring for people who should be getting care. And then actually long-term care facilities continue to promote precarious work where people get poor wages like nurses and PSWs, and they don't get paid sick leave, for example. I think we've also seen the impact of ableism and how people with disabilities have been significantly impacted by this pandemic. And we're seeing the, a growing, you know, really difficult, you know, trend that we're seeing more and more people who are you know, being pushed into poverty because um, social assistance rates for people with disabilities are so low, and that many of them are now even requesting medical assistance in dying. Um, um, and so, you know, I got to uh, testify at the Canadian Senate um, in, in uh, last year, and that gave me the opportunity to actually talk about how, you know, don't get me wrong, I understand the, the need for medical assistance in dying. Canadians have spoken, they want it. But that if we're going to make medical assistance in dying more accessible, we have a moral obligation to make living well through housing and mental health supports accessible too. Um, I think we've also talked about, you know, harm reduction, but I'm also concerned about the criminalization of poverty and this ongoing trend towards, you know, what we've seen last summer in cities like Toronto, where, you know, encampments were cleared, you know, through violent, you know, military style action. And, you know, the city of Toronto spent upwards of $2 million to remove like 62 people from parks, literally $33,000 a person. You know, there's a strong desire there when they do that. Um, uh, it's very well targeted and very well, you know, specifically planned. And, and I think that, 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 that is, you know, an example of the criminalization of poverty that we're seeing. I wonder if we can, you know, really think about the way that we're over-policing our communities and how racialized communities have borne the brunt of this pandemic and then have been over-policed as well and how we can, you know, think about ways to, you know, uh, redirect some of that funding towards, uh, you know, work that might actually heal our communities, like housing, mental health, education, um, uh, you know, supports for, you know, single parents, um, outreach programs, you know, uh, just those kinds of things as we think it through. And then finally, thinking about essential workers, I'm um, thinking about the way that labor is a, is a determinant of health and how paid sick leave, adequate, adequate wages uh, were such an important part of the conversation. And we saw how, you know, workers at places like Amazon or other, you know, other, uh, other workers in factories, um, you know, uh, or, or plants were at higher risk of COVID and, you know, simple policies like a paid sick leave policy was something that our provincial government here in Ontario was not willing to do. Even to this day, you know, workers get an inadequate number of three paid sick days for an illness where you're basically supposed to, you know, isolate now for five, but previously it was 10. That's ludicrous, right? So I think across the board, we have to see this, you know, as an intersectional kind of conversation. And those are just some of the social, 
you know, um, it, you know, inequity, health inequities that we see. In terms of you know, learning more and 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 moving along, I want to give shout out to the groups that I work with. You know, Doctors for Justice and Long Term Care, Doctors for Defunding Police. You know, the Decent Work and Health Network, the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. These are just some of the you know um, advocacy organizations that I align with. And uh, for sure, if anybody wants to learn more, you know, you can um, check me out on Twitter and Instagram at Nahid and H-E-E-D-E-D. And what I love to do is actually amplify and promote the work of others. So I'm sure you'll get to, you know, learn about, you know, some of my my friends and colleagues and, and, and comrades along the way as well. Thank you so much. That's been great. And, you know, uh, for all those people listening who are policymakers or not, or who are influencers or who can influence through their vote, you know, that is it. Those are all the issues on the table. That's all we need to do. It's not rocket science. It's right there. We can all make a change. Is there anything else, Dr. Asani, that you want to share with our listeners, you want them to think about, or any causes or um, actions that you want us to amplify? You know, I think one of the things that I reflect on is uh, there's been a lot of debate in the COVID pandemic about the role of health workers as advocates. And I will say that there has been um, some discourse out there um, that has really challenged health workers on whether they should be advocates. And I will say that, you know, if you look at the health outcomes for us, for people across Canada, the vast majority of your, your health outcomes are social they're socially oriented. And, um, you know, um, when you think about what drives social policy, it's ultimately politics. And so I stopped talking about the social determinants of health, you know, housing, income, you know, job access as a, as a static list of factors. I started talking more about the structural determinants of health um, because it really sends the message that those social factors can change. And the structural determinants of health being, you know, anything and everything, including ableism, capitalism, racism, you know, xenophobia, transphobia, um, um, and so on and so forth. And so advocacy isn't just, you know, um, um, our, uh, you know, our, uh, you know, something that we can do. It, it, advocacy is our lane as health workers. This is our lane. And I just wanted to end on that concept. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. There's so many pearls of wisdom that you have given us today and uh, really grateful for you to be here. There's lots more we could talk about folks. Um, follow Dr. Dosani on social media listen, we'll have all the links in the show notes for you to uh, link up and learn more and perhaps even volunteer or partner with some of the organizations that you're part of. Really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. And I just want to thank you for everything you're doing, not only uh, working on the front lines, but also all the education that you're giving through social media or the media or even through this conversation. It's been really beneficial to me personally, and I know to hundreds and thousands of folks during the pandemic and beyond. And you've really opened our eyes to a lot of issues uh, at the intersections of equity and access uh, in terms of healthcare. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Best wishes. Thank you so much. Listen and rate and review this podcast if you love this episode. And let us know what you want to hear more about. Follow the podcast and visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership. Curated Leadership.